How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments to give you the, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the insight that it gives us into your plans and purposes for mankind, the insights into what happens as human beings fail to rely upon you, trust in you, and follow your uh, will. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the importance of uh, following and applying your word. Father, we pray for our nation at this time of, of increased uh, alert for terrorism, threat of attack. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide the security that this nation needs. We pray that you would do this because this is still a nation that sends out the thousands of missionaries and still supports Israel. Father, we pray that you would uh, watch over us, give our president wisdom, keep him safe, protect our, our leaders. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct us through your word and that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture, that means the chapters we're getting ready to study in Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis 4.16. A lot of times folks get to certain sections of the Scripture where we have these genealogies and they just sort of skip those chapters. But remember, all Scripture is God-breathed, and there are important uh, lessons embedded even in the genealogies. And there's a lot of uh, debate over certain aspects of these genealogies, which we'll be covering uh, this week and next week as well. Now, last time we covered the first part of Genesis chapter 4, which covers the first murder, when Cain murdered Abel. And in that chapter, we see the typical pattern of how the sinner who has rejected God responds to God. We saw how Cain rejects God's warning about sin. Cain, like any uh, person operating on the sin nature and human viewpoint, is redefining the grounds for coming to the Lord, so he brings an offering of the fruit of the ground rather than a blood offering. We saw that when God challenges him with his sin and warns him of the danger of succumbing to temptation, that Cain treats that warning lightly in the same way people who are operating on carnality, either unbelievers or carnal believers, treat the warnings of God lightly and frivolously as if, They have no significance. 
and then they go right ahead and do whatever it is they want to do. And then finally we saw that in carnality, whether an unbeliever or carnal believer, there is the pattern of refusing to accept responsibility for one's actions and then wanting to avoid the punishment and the consequences for one's actions. And so at the end of the section, which I just touched on briefly as we wrapped up last time, we have God extending grace to Cain because there is no punishment, uh, there's no capital punishment to Cain for this crime. And that's for a number of reasons. I think primarily because at this stage in human history, God was not going to remove someone uh, through capital punishment, but God was going to leave them alive as to serve as an example to others. So in verse uh, 12, Let's go back to verse 11. God is announcing the consequences, the judgment for, for the murder. He says, so now you are cursed from the earth so that nature, once again, we saw last time, nature is affected by man's sin. We get this idea in life somehow that sin just affects the human race, just affects us, and we don't realize the sinfulness of sin, that Adam's choice reverberated throughout the entire universe, and it changed physical, biological, zoological law. And the same thing happens with Cain. As a result of his sin, now it is going to be difficult, an even more difficult task for him to bring forth fruit from the ground, produce from the ground. Verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So now... Cain is uh, told that he is going to be wandering around. He is going to be a wanderer. And the word, the second word there, that he's a fugitive and a vagabond, or that he is going to be a nomad and a wanderer, that second word there is, in fact, the uh, Hebrew, from the Hebrew word uh, node, which is where you get uh, cognate for the land of Nod, which is mentioned uh, later on down in verse 16. So he is going to be a wanderer. He is not to be located in any single place. There's no security there. And so Cain responds to the Lord, and he starts to whine about it in verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And even at that point, Cain recognizes in some sense that uh, the civilization is going to expand. I take it from this. It's implied. It's not clearly stated. But I think it's implied that some time has gone by since uh, the, since, since his birth. He's maybe, as, he may be 40, 50, or 60 years of age. Enough time has gone by to where Cain can look around and he is seeing marriages take place. He's seeing pregnancies occur. He realizes how quickly, uh, the human race will multiply and in just a few years he rec- recognizes that there will be uh, a number of relatives who may want to avenge themselves or avenge Abel's murder on, on him and take his life. So it, he says, it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And see, that kind of a sentence doesn't make sense if there's only 
four people on the face of the planet. That only makes sense if there's a number of people on the planet. And we'll get into some of the numbers and how the um, population quickly grew over the period of Cain's life. So he he thinks that this is too great of a of a punishment for him. And so the Lord says to him in verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That is, vengeance shall be taken upon the person who murders Cain. He, no one has the right to take life other than God. This is God's warning that if someone does murder Cain, God himself will avenge that murder uh, sevenfold. Now, the key word that is used here for vengeance and uh, to avenge is the Hebrew word nakam. Looks like this. Nakam. N-A-Q-A-M. And when it is used where God is the subject, then the idea is the execution of divine justice from the Supreme Court of Heaven. This is an action from the Supreme Court of Heaven. This is the same word that's used in those verses you know. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And when you look in the Psalms, numerous times you have this word used where there's a cry from the psalmist to God to bring vengeance on someone's enemies. But it's not vengeance in the sense of revenge, which is a a, a, a sin pattern that comes from the sin nature where man wants to take justice into his own hands. See, this is a cry to God who is the source of justice. Remember that God's righteousness is the absolute standard of his integrity and justice is the application of that standard towards his creatures. So when God speaks of vengeance, this should not be, I think this is a poor translation, It should be translated, the Lord says to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, justice will be applied to him sevenfold. In other words, there would be a sevenfold payment uh, for that crime above and beyond beyond, uh, Cain's punishment. And so in order to indicate that there was a special divine protection on Cain, the Lord put a mark on him. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what this mark is. You've had some people float the theory that this is why you have dark-skinned people, is that's the mark of Cain. That was some uh, older view, 19th century, 18th century view. But others have come up with other suggestions. It may be something as simple as some sort of tattoo, some sort of mark that had a significance. We don't know, and so speculation is um, not to be encouraged. All we can say is that there was some sort of physical indication on Cain that set him apart and indicated God's protection upon him. It may have been a symbol. It may have had uh, some sort of meaning, such as a word, something of that nature, but it indicated that God was protecting uh, Cain. And the point of this is that God is teaching that he alone has the right to determine life or death. God alone has the prerogative of determining life and death. Now, in the last section, in the section from 1 through 16, and it should be 1 through 16, because you have a parallel between verse 17 and verse 1 of this chapter. In 4.1 we read, Now Adam 
knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And that's parallel. You don't have the name of Cain's wife, but it's parallel to verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So most of your Bibles, your English Bibles, put a paragraph division at verse 16, but the paragraph division should occur at verse 17. Verse 16 is the conclusion of the previous episode, which states that Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. He dwelt on the east of Eden. Now, there is something about that that is a bit of a reminder of a similar phrase back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 8, we're told the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. But notice there's the Hebrew preposition bah there prior to the noun Eden, indicating that it's on the east side, but it is in Eden. Now that man has been expelled from Eden, they are outside the garden, and they, and so, uh, this land of Nod, which is a place of wandering, is outside of the bounds of Eden on the east side of Eden. Now, as we get into this next section, which extends from 17 to 26, it folk, the primary element here is to describe the descendants of Cain. So we have our first genealogy, and there is a list here, so we want to make a number of observations before we get into the text itself. First of all, we should note that there are a number of contrasts here between the line of Cain and the line of Adam through Seth given in chapter 5. That's the background. The chapter divisions came in later, and there's a contrast between Cain's line and Seth's line. Now, this doesn't mean, as some have inferred, that everyone in the line of Cain was an unbeliever or that everyone in the line of Adam was a believer. When we get into Genesis uh, 6 and we deal with the sons of God who came in and took took wives from uh, um, the sons of God came in and took wives from the daughters of men, we'll look at various interpretations of that passage in one view is that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth and the and the daughters of men were uh, were the descendants of Cain. And there are a number of reasons why that's wrong, but as we'll see in a little bit, that the population of the earth by then was somewhere between 5 and 7 billion. See, most people don't realize what how rapidly the population grew over this 1,600-year period between uh, Cain and Noah. And so if you've got a 1,600-year period and people living uh, coterminously through eight generations, then you're going to have a lot of people on the earth. Just think if everybody that had been born since the year 1100 was still alive. We would have an enormous population. And that was the situation in this antediluvian civilization. So it's absurd to think that the human race was divided into two groups, those who were the descendants of Cain, and they were all unbelievers, and those who were descendants of, of Seth, and they were all believers. And then when you come down to the end, though, everybody's an unbeliever except for Noah and his family. There's only eight unbelievers, I mean, only eight believers at the end of that period. So this is a ridiculous uh, interpretation just on the face of it and doesn't treat the details of the text with the respect that they demand. So, the, but the author, 
Uh, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawing cer- certain thematic contrasts and certain emphases between the two lines. And one of those, the first of these, is that in the line of Cain, there is an emphasis on the development of human civilization. We will see that he has uh, descendants that uh, are the progenitors of uh, dwelling in tents and uh, animal husbandry. We also see that he has the, he is the in his line there are those who are the progenitors of music and the development in, of music and musical instruments, as well as metallurgy and the development of weaponry. All of this comes from the line of Cain. There's a an emphasis here on culture, the development of culture and civilization. In contrast, the emphasis on the line of Seth is on their spiritual focus. At the end of this chapter, we have the comment, after the birth of of, uh, Seth's son Enosh, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So there is an emphasis here. It's not that there is something wrong with the development of culture and civilization and technology, but that it's developed on its for its own sake by the descendants of Cain. Now we know that the descendants on Seth's side had a tremendous amount of technology and culture and civilization on their own part. For example, when Noah and his, his uh, sons get together, they're going to build the ark. So that demands a tremendous amount of technical skill to build the ark. It demanded a certain amount of uh, an ability with animals in order to bring all those animals together, in order to build all of the technology that was necessary to handle the enormous tonnage of excrement produced on a daily basis on the ark. They had to develop all kinds of technology on the ark in order to feed thousands of animals on a daily basis in order to take care of all of the things that that went along with that. So they were technologically advanced, but they weren't into technology for technology's sake. They were into technology, but they put it under the priority of their relationship with God. And there's a tremendous distinction. And so I think we can draw certain conclusions from this observation. First of all, we need to conclude that not all of these developments, such as technology or civilization, are inherently wrong. It is when they become ends in themselves, when success, culture, technology becomes an end in themselves, or to promote man against God, that it becomes evil. In contrast, divine viewpoint puts the emphasis not on human accomplishments, but on the spiritual life. So the emphasis for Cain and his line is look at what we've accomplished, look at what we're able to develop, and that's not even mentioned with the descendants of Seth. The emphasis is on their relationship with God. Second implication we can draw is that the accoutrements of civilization uh, become a tool in the hands of fallen man to try to make life work apart from God. In other words, what we see 
in Cain and his descendants is as they are separated from God, they are trying to ameliorate the problems of the curse living in a fallen world through technological development instead of their relationship with God. In other words, man is always developing his own problem-solving devices in order to make life easier apart from God. Now remember, I'm not juxtaposing that. It is not that, that it is only when technology and civilization and culture becomes an end in itself to make life work apart from God that it becomes a problem. So these early technological achievements which we see here are presented in such a way as, as attempts to solve the problems of living in a fallen, cursed world apart from God. And then, a third implication we can see is an application toward Israel. Remember, Moses is writing this to explain to Israel why they are God's chosen people and to teach them certain principles as they go into the land. And they're going into the land of Canaan, which is populated by people who are not dissimilar from the descendants of Cain. They have a culture. They have a, a rich religious heritage, as pagan and perverted as it was, and they have... Uh, uh, certain technological skills and what uh, the point of application would be that it, as the Israelites go into the land of Canaan, they were not to supplant their own relationship with God with the cultural and technological refinements that they found in Canaan. Now, another thing that's emphasized in this narrative is how the unrighteous descendants of Cain modify the divine institutions. And we see that in our own day. This is the orientation of the pagan mind, the fallen mind, is to change the divine institutions in order to fit their own comfort zone. So the first, remember at this time, there are only three divine institutions in operation. The first divine institution is human responsibility. That each person is responsible for their own choices and their own, their own decisions and with that goes accountability, consequences. So Cain is punished by God and he is going to be a wanderer, a nomad, wandering the face of the earth, but instead of doing that, he try, he shakes his fist at God and he builds a city so that he can have a place to dwell. Uh, his descendant, Lamech, commits murder and treats it lightly. He uses it as a way to show off in front of his wives as if there's no accountability, no responsibility for his own actions. The second divine institution is marriage. And there again, Lamech is involved as he restructures marriage and introduces polygamy. So for the first time in history, polygamy comes into play, and it becomes a a social problem for the next uh, millennia at least, for several thousand years. So, And then the third thing that comes to this, that develops from this, is the breakdown of the family. So in just this, these few brief verses that describe the genealogy of Cain, the descendants of Cain, we see the breakdown in divine institution as pagan fallen man seeks to change the divine institutions. So Cain's descendants are marked by a desire to change the divine institutions, a disdain and disrespect for human life, and for technological and cultural 
achievements. The third thing we need to note as we approach a genealogy is to understand something about the structure of these genealogies. At a basic level, genealogies were written in the ancient world in order to celebrate advancement and the development of culture. Look at how far we've come. Look at our progress. Look at our development. Look at what each generation produced. But yet Cain's genealogy has a certain ominous tone. It begins with a murderer and ends with a murderer. And so there's an ominous tone of calamity and judgment. Now, when we look at genealogies, there are four technical terms that we need to understand. The first term, and we'll get into this more next time, is a linear genealogy. A linear genealogy. And this is what we have at the beginning of, uh, of this genealogy. Let me see if I can... Pull up a, there we go. The first part here is linear. Just one person gives birth to the next person, they give birth to the next person, and they give birth to the next person. So the first seven, under the Canaanites, the first seven is given in a linear way. Then the second term that you have is a segmented genealogy. And in a segmented genealogy, this is what you have at the end where you give a father and then uh, two or more of the children where it branches out. And this will come into play even more when we get into Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 where we have the table of nations. And if you want to understand history and prophecy in the Bible, you have to understand the table of nations. Most people go, oh, gee, this is boring. I've been looking forward to teaching the Table of Nations for a long time. I mean, there's fascinating stuff here. But if you don't like history, you're going to be bored to death. But see, if you understand that history is God's plan and purposes for mankind, you can't be bored with history. And that's what is laid out. The whole structure, or foundation rather, for prophecy is laid out by understanding the different tribal groups and different people groups as they're developed in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So we have these two terms, linear genealogies and segmented genealogies. Then the next two terms are related, and you have an open genealogy and a closed genealogy. Now, an open genealogy is when you have X gives birth to B. And then you might have B gives birth to to H. Now, obviously, I left something out, didn't I? I skipped three or four generations. It's an open genealogy, and there's several examples of open genealogies in the Scriptures. For example, in Matthew 1, where you have the genealogy of Christ presented from Abraham down to Joseph. And Matthew groups those individuals in three groups of 14. Now, a 14 represents two groups of seven. 
So he is organizing them in order to make a point, and his theological point is the seventh, the the first of the the seventh of the seventh generation, or the first of the seventh generation, is Jesus Christ, and that indicates with the numeral seven, uh, that indicates completion. But there are gaps in those genealogies. But there's one thing you don't see in an open genealogy. Another open genealogy is the one that we have here. Just look at your Bible for a minute. Let's read through this. Verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Skip to verse 18. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives, and then you have a development of Lamech and his children. Now, I want, I just read that to you. Now, I want to read part of the, the genealogy in chapter five. And I want you to tell me, see if anybody's smart enough to note what the difference is. Look at Genesis five three. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Anybody notice what the difference is between those two genealogies? Numbers. The first genealogy, the genealogy of Cain doesn't have any numbers. It just says, you know, one person gave birth to another person. And so you can have in an open genealogy the insertion of several generations or gaps between the individuals. But in a closed genealogy... You, you make the statement that A lived X years, and then he gave birth to Y, or let me say, let's say he gave birth to B, and then he lives Y years, then B lives X years, and gives birth to C. Well, even if there's a gap, and I don't think there are any, and we'll discuss the famous gap problem when we get into Genesis 11, even if there was a, a, a generation mixed, uh, a generation missed here, and B lives X years and gives birth to D or E or F or G, B would still be, you know, 80 years of age when E is born, even if there were two other people in between. He's still 80 years old. You can still add up the numbers. And uh, one of my Hebrew professors at Dallas Seminary, he's the head of the department at the time, who did his Ph.D. dissertation at a, at Oxford. Oh, excuse me, he did his Ph.D. at Cambridge. He shoot me for that. Did his Ph.D. at Cambridge, and he wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11. And I asked him one time, I said, are there any gaps in the genealogies? And he said, no, there's no way you can break a genealogy like that. It is impossible to, once you put the numbers in there, you can't break the genealogy. Of course, some people say, well, there are gaps in other genealogies, but they're not closed genealogies. They don't have the numbers there. Now, there's a very famous uh, problem that occurs because there's one name 
in the Genesis 11 text that is uh, that's left out of the Genesis 11 text that is allegedly inserted in the Luke 3 genealogy of Jesus. That's only one name. You don't get 5,000 years from one name. And furthermore, there are textual problems with that name in both the Hebrew text of the, New, of the Old Testament and in the Greek text of Luke. So it's my conclusion after studying the details on that is that there is no individual left out in that genealogy. There are no gaps in these genealogies. And so you can add up all the numbers and you can de- determine how much time went by. And there are no no gaps in the genealogy. So as we go through this, we're going to have to understand some of those issues related to closed and open genealogies. Now, as I said earlier, Cain's descendants attempt to make life work apart from God. This is the problem with human viewpoint. Human viewpoint always seeks to solve life's problems apart from God. What we see here is that unbelievers can produce many good and helpful things for society, but the, and these achievements are not evil in themselves, but they have no spiritual value. They don't uh, contribute any to the glorification of God in the angelic conflict, and they don't fit in with man's mission as an image bearer of God and someone who is set over creation as a vicegerent of God. So we start in verse verse uh, 17, and we see the beginning of this development when Cain had relations with his wife, and this is the same terminology as I said earlier that you have in verse 1. Literally, it is Cain knew his wife. It's the cow perfect of Yada, which is a Hebrew idiom for sexual intimacy. And Cain had sexual intimacy with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And Enoch, Enoch's name in the Hebrew looks like this. C-H-A-N-O-K, which is the same etymological root or cognate for our word, the word we're familiar with, which is Hanukkah, has the same root, and it means dedication. And then it has some significance in relationship to the action that occurs here is that he was building a city, and the he here is left somewhat ambiguous in the Hebrew text, but it probably refers to Cain. He was building a city. He never completed it. He's in the process of building a city. And he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son, meaning a dedication. Now, the interesting thing about building a city, and the name of the, the, the word for city is the Hebrew word ear. I-R. And it has the also the idea of a fortification. In early towns were usually fortifications, and so there's an ominous tone here that Cain is building this fortification because he knows he's in rebellion against God. He's supposed to be a nomad and a wanderer, but he's going to solve his problems on his own, so he builds his own little fortification to protect himself against God. This is what fallen man does. He tries to construct a view of life that ignores God. He wants to be comfortable. He wants to feel secure. 
He wants to feel free from judgment that he can get away with his actions and not have to face any consequences. So he builds this city, a fortification, which he names after his son Enoch. Now the question that always comes up at this point is, well, who did Cain marry? Who was Cain's wife? Somebody always asks that question. Cain married his sister. There were, there were no other human beings. Now what happens, and what happened is that you start off with Adam and Eve. And according to Genesis 5-4, they had many sons and daughters. So we don't know how many they had, but they had at least six, let's say. And we're going to use that as an extremely conservative number. They had at least six, so that allows them to pair up into three couples. And then they will then produce into the next generation. Now, when Adam and Eve were created, they have within their genetic makeup all genetic combinations. Remember, they're only one step removed from perfect environment, so there hasn't been a dilution of the gene pool yet. You don't get a commandment which prohibits um, marriage between close relatives until the Mosaic Law. And the reason is, is there's not a problem with it genetically. It's not until you get to a point where the gene pool has been diluted enough to where you can, you're going to have birth defects and other problems as a result of marriage between people who are too closely related. So they married their sisters, and I think they probably had many more children. I remember my first church where I pastored in a little town called Lamarck, Texas, which is the last place you stop at on the way to Galveston. And I had some folks in my church who were in their 70s at that time, and this was 20 years ago. And they were, they grew up back and were born back in the early part of the, uh, of the century, back 1908, 1910. And they had 12, 14, 15, one lady had 18 siblings. See, we're, we live in an era when, you know, if somebody has a large family, they have seven or eight kids, but you go back a hundred years, you're going to find a lot of families who had, because of high infant mortality, they didn't know how many they would lose, they would have 15, 16, 17 kids. Now, not everybody had that many kids, but there were many that had that many. I think my grandmother's family had eight or nine kids. So, to assume that people who lived 900 years only had six children is extremely conservative. But we're going to use that figure as we uh, look at the development of these generations. So Cain's wife was his sister, and they went off and they developed their own line apart from Adam and Eve and the others. Now in verse 18, we begin to look at these descendants. Now to Enoch was born Erad. And Arad is a city that, as you look at the name, let's back it up just a little bit. As you look at this word that I just put up on the overhead, ear for city, city, town, fortification, as you look at this word, you see the similarity with Arad. And so some people think that this indicates that he was a town dweller. A city dweller. 
Others relate it etymologically to the Semitic word for a wild donkey or for cane huts, which is an interesting connection because according to certain uh, Canaanite mythologies, the early uh, there were some the early gods that dwelt on the earth built cane huts. Well, we're not sure, but what what any of these names mean, but they give a certain uh, a, a certain flavor of the time. Erod became the father then of Mahujael. Now, if you look at that last those last two letters in Mahujael, you see the name of God, Mahujael short for Elohim, and then his son is Methushael. And so we can perhaps speculate that because these two individuals had L in their name, that perhaps they were believers. Remember I said you can't just assume that everybody in each each side was a believer or an unbeliever. Perhaps they were uh, believers. Mahujael uh, can, means either ecstatic of God or perhaps it means God gives life. So his name recognizes some uh, relationship to God. Methushael means a man of God. And then Methushael's son is Lamech, which means a conqueror. Now, Lamech has two wives. He is the one who begins uh, polygamy. His first wife's name is Ada, which means an ornament, which indicates that she was quite attractive. And his second wife is Zillah, which means a shadow or a shade. Now, when we think of shadow or shade, we think of something perhaps evil, especially if you've seen The Lord of the Rings recently, uh, Land of the Shadow. But there's another value to shadow or shade, and that is comfort. It's a place where there's a, where you rest and you're refreshed. And so these two names suggest their physical beauty. So Lamech is married to two wives, and these women give birth to two sons each. They give birth to two sons each, and so in verse 20 we read, Ada bore Jabal, and he's the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So he's the one who invents tents, and there's a hint here, the first time of a truly nomadic culture. Remember in According to evolutionary theory, you have a development where man begins as a hunter and gatherer and then he develops into a pastoral society and he's got flocks and cattle and then he finally develops to being a town person. The Bible presents just the reverse. Man starts off as a town dweller and then as he deteriorates because of his spiritual condition, he then becomes more and more of a wanderer and this is where we come up with uh, various uh, regressive sort of uh, fossils on the human race, such as Neanderthal men, is these weren't the main chain. These were the guys, that bro- the, the groups that broke off from the main line of development and went off and lived and deteriorated into Stone Age cultures. So Ada gives birth to Jabal, who's the progenitor of the nomads, the nomads and the herds, herdsmen. And his brother's name is Jubal, and Jubal is the father or the progenitor of all those who play the harp and flute. The harp, the lyre, indicates he he invents the stringed instruments, and flute would represent wind instruments. 
Zillah, the second wife, bore Tubal Cain, who's an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. He's the progenitor of metallurgy, and he begins to develop both bronze and iron. Now, notice if you get involved with any kind of modern archaeology, when they break down the history of man, they go back to Bronze Age 1 and Bronze Age 2 and then Iron Age 1 and Iron Age 2, and that might reflect certain technological realities after the flood. But see, before the flood, you have bronze and iron being developed from the very beginning. And apparently that technology is lost after the flood, and it takes uh, many generations before it is recovered. So there's some interesting things that take place here in in uh, in this deterioration. Of the, uh, of the culture as it deteriorates from, from Cain down to, uh, Lamech. And then Lamech commits a murder and he does it in such a way that the, the idea is that he is impressing his wives as he has defeated this young warrior. Ada and Zillah hear my voice. Wives of Lamech listen to my speech. So he puts together this taunt song. So this is the first song. So we see this emphasis on music and his family. For I have killed a man. For wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, that is if somebody were to kill Cain and his, he would be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech says that I should be avenged seventy-sevenfold. And the point that he is making is that he treats this murder so lightly. It's a trivial event to take the life of someone. Now, one last note as we go through this, this, um, uh, genealogy that if you were to take the time to break down the the population growth and you start off with just six children in each generation and remember each generation is living 900 years that's pretty much the average some lived a little more some a shade less but they're averaging 900 years they probably have five or six hundred years of fertility where they are producing children now, if you recognize that you have people living co- uh, concurrently, then by the time uh, by, by the time of the fourth century, when 400 years had gone by, the population on the earth would have been about 120,000. So, by the time Cain was 400 years old, you've got an Earth's population of about 120,000. Now, if you extrapolate that out to the time that the flood comes and Noah's flood occurs 1,656 years after the creation, then you have an earth's population with six children in each generation of seven billion. I don't think it's quite seven billion yet. I think it's six point something billion today. But that gives you a totally new idea of what life was like on the earth before the flood. There was an enormous number of people on the earth, and only eight had positive volition. Now think about that when Jesus says that that it, when he returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah, time uh, characterized by extreme, extreme negative vo- volition. Now, one last thing that I want to point out as we go through this is that this is really a polemic against 
pagan thought and pagan mythology in the ancient world because in the ancient Near East, it was standard to attribute all technological advancements and the development of civilization to the various gods and deities. For example, in the Ugaritic texts, and here's how you spell that word, Ugaritic, and Ugarit, that's U-G-A-R-I-T-E, U-R-I-T, Ugarit, was a city to the north of Israel. And uh, several decades ago, they discovered a, a library there, and which gave a lot of insight into Canaanite culture at the time of the uh, conquest. And in Ugaritic texts, the discovery of iron was made by their god Koshar, who was the divine artisan and blacksmith. In Cyprus, the god Siniras invented the lyre, and it was the Greek god Pan who invented the flute, in contrast to, to what the biblical account is, which is human beings who are inventing these things. In the Sumerian flood story Atrahasis, which we'll refer to some when we get into our study of the flood, it's the mother goddess Nintur who founds cities for the protection of man. Now think about this. Remember what I've been saying all along is that mythology is a perversion and a reversal of what actually happened. So they have this faded and distorted memory of truth. So you look at this Atrahasis epic where Nintur says that man has to have developed cities in order to protect himself. What's he protecting himself from? It's from God. You see, what you have in two cases in the early part of Genesis where you have cities being developed is first with Cain. He builds a city to protect himself from what? From God's wrath. Then after the flood, you have the development of the Tower of Babel and men gathering together in cities instead of expanding as God had commanded them. So we have to understand that that in these mythologies, there's a, a reminiscence of a certain amount of truth there, and they needed to build cities. Man built these cities in order to protect themselves from God so that God would not destroy them again by a flood. In Mesopotamian tradition, the arts and sciences were developed by seven antediluvian uh, sort of mythical sages that were called the Apkalu, and that word means the fishmen. And these Apkalu were there were seven of them. Notice there's a there's a, another element of the distorted memory here because there are seven generations in in the Cain genealogy. Adam is number one, Cain, Enoch, Erad, Mahujael, Methushael, and Lamech. These are the seven in that generation. So in the Mesopotamian tradition, you have seven sages. Also in the Mesopotamian tradition, the first city is called Iridu, which is a cognate of the name Erad, which is Cain's grandson. So the mythologies that are out there were not the source of biblical information, but they are the distortion of what happened as these legends were passed down from the descendants of the flood and got got distorted along the way. Now, in verse 25 of, of uh, chapter 4, we come back to Adam. 
We come back to new life. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. Now remember, Seth is born when Cain must be 30 or could be 30 or 40 years of age. He is born after Cain and Abel have both grown to maturity and Cain has murdered Abel. So we don't know precisely. It could be just 20 years difference. It could be uh, 30 years difference, but obviously there's a continuation of having children throughout that period of time. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born and named him Enosh. And these men began to call on the name of the Lord. And as we wrap up, what we'll see here is that these men who are calling on the name of the Lord, that's really a bad translation. The Hebrew word is kara, Q-A-R-A. And in some cases it means to call or to summon, but it also means to announce and to proclaim and in some places it even has the idea of to preach. So the idea here is not they began to call on the name of the Lord, but they began to announce or to proclaim the name of the Lord. And the word there for name, Shem, doesn't simply mean they're announcing what God's name is. But name in the scripture relates to someone's attributes or their character. And so what we find here is that in this generation with the birth of Enosh, then there is a positive volition to God and men begin to proclaim the character of God. So we see this emphasis on worship, this emphasis on proclaiming the attributes and character of God throughout the land. Now remember what is interesting about this whole period is there's no human government. There's none whatsoever. There's no establishment of a judicial system. God is still present. He's still dwelling in Eden, and God's presence is with, is with man. And as we saw with, with Cain and Abel, it is God who is executing justice, and he's doing that through his angels. That's why he set the cherubs outside the Garden of Eden and gave them a sword, and a sword is always a picture of the execution of power and justice in Scripture. So the... God, through the angels, is executing justice and carrying out justice. That's the judicial system in this antediluvian civilization. And when we come back next time, before we get into chapter 5, we will start to look at the doctrine of civilizations as it's presented in Scripture and the characteristics of the antediluvian civilization. And then we will get into the genealogy of chapter 5, as it prepares us for the tremendous judgment on the antediluvian civilization in the worldwide flood of Noah. And that will probably take us at least five or six weeks, maybe longer, to go through the details of the Noahic flood with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to realize the importance of history in your word, and that you have 
uh, reveal to us that which we should know in order to have a continuity and understand the continuity of your work in history. Father, we're reminded of your grace in this story as you've provided, continue to, to work through uh, different generations. And as these men began to announce your character and to proclaim your attributes, we're reminded of the continuous proclamation of the gospel. And, Father, we pray now that as we uh, prepare for a celebration of Christmas in the next day or two, that we might keep our focus on the reason that we are celebrating, and that is because you have sent us a Savior who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.